I received uh, a gift this last week. It was kind of a precious gift. I, I saw probably the most spectacular and sensational sunset or sunrise that I have ever seen. I uh, drive my kids to school early in the morning when it's dark. And uh, as I was driving back, the sun was not yet up. And I could already see that it was, it was going to be glorious. And so I stopped my truck and I got out and I just had to watch. Because on the eastern horizon, there was this river of clouds. It was just a river of clouds hiding the sun. But the sun was already behind the clouds. And so there was, they talk about this silver lining on the clouds. Well, it wasn't silver. It was brilliant. It was just, it, it chiseled the sky. And it was even more profound to see the sunlight and the beams of light shooting through the holes of the clouds, this river of clouds. And over me were other clouds, and these beams would shoot and splash onto the clouds above me, and the sky was on fire. And it was just one of those little moments where you stop, and I was just, I was just in total awe. It was a little worship moment where I, where I had to worship the artist that created that. And just for a, for a moment, because it went away within like 15 minutes, allowed me to see something that only our Creator could, could create. It was a glimpse of, of glory. And as I think about these messages about who God is, I, my hope and my prayer is, is that they are glimpses of the glory of the God who made us and the God who came and gave His life for us. I'm, I'm hopeful that... You don't come and just hear a talk about theology or doctrine, but more importantly, you see a God who is immensely glorious and worthy of trust and worthy of love. That's, that's my prayer for these, these messages. And we have looked at different perfections of God. You can call them perfections or glories or wonders or mysteries. This week we come to the perfection or the mystery or the wonder of God's, uh, the fact that God is unchanging. Uh, theologians have another word for it called immutable. It sounds like a big bird, word, big bird, big word, but it really isn't. Uh, we know what the word mutate means. And kids watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You know, the turtles change and become these crime fighters because they mutated. Well, immutable means it will never change, cannot change. It's always the same. And that's one of the great perfections of God that we find in Scripture is that he never ever and will never change and yet we find in the scripture what seems like as it relates to change somewhat of a contradiction and i'd like to explore that apparent contradiction i don't believe it's a contradiction but i would like to explore it um, with you and i'm going to take you through a number of quick texts for example in the opening chapters of the history of mankind, from Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, 6, many of you know the stories, um, we see a man or mankind go from perfect and good to bad, and then from bad to worse. So by the time you get to Genesis 6, only six chapters into human history, we read this about God's perception and what happens to the heart of God. It says, verse 6 of chapter 6, of Genesis, the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth. And of course, he sends a flood and he wipes them off the face of the earth, all but eight. But that statement there that the Lord's heart was grieved, older translations say it repented the Lord. 
So you see a, a change. It's also translated, he changed his mind in other texts. You see a difference between God in chapter 1 of Genesis when he looks at his creation and says, it was very good. And then you see in chapter 6 that he is deeply disturbed and his heart is filled with pain, giving us the impression that, that, that a change has happened in the heart of God. You fast forward about 2,000 years in the second book of the Bible, and you find Moses in chapter 32 of Exodus up on top of a mountain. And there he is speaking with the Lord on behalf of the people of Israel who are at the bottom of the mountain. And many of you are familiar with that story of the Exodus. If, you, if you're not familiar with that story in the Bible, then you might be familiar with Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments. It's the Hollywood version of the story. Well, there's this one point where, where Moses is up on top of the mountain and he's speaking with the Lord and down below the people of Israel are getting tired of waiting and so they fashion an idol out of gold. It looks like a calf and they begin worshiping it. And the text says that they, they ate and they drank and they got up to play, which means it seems like they were committing different act, acts of debauchery. And up on the mountain, meanwhile, the Lord is talking to Moses and he is angered by what he sees going on down at the bottom of the mountain. And he says to Moses, he says, I am angry at these people and I'm going to wipe them off the map and I will give what I promised to them to you and to your inheritance or to your people, to your posterity. And um, at that point, Moses does an amazing thing. I mean, God just threatened and said his stated intent was to wipe them out. And Moses does a courageous thing in that is he pleads on their behalf. People down on the bottom of the mountain are sinning. And Moses looks at the Lord and he basically says to him, he says, think about your reputation. What other people are going to think about you bringing your people out of Egypt and out here, bring them out here to slaughter them. Think about your reputation. And then he also reminds the Lord at that point, he says, remember that you made promises to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob and to their posterity that you would give them a land. So kind of Moses is pleading on their behalf. And, and a verse of Scripture says this, and this is 32.14, it says, then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Older translations tell us that the Lord changed his mind. He repented of his stated intent. In some sense, Moses got in the way of God and he persuaded him in some sense so that God changed his stated intent. So here we have Genesis viewing this change in the heart of God between chapter 1 and chapter 6. And you have Exodus chapter 32, God changing His stated intent as a result of Moses pleading. And then you fast forward another couple hundred years into the time of the kings, or right before the time of the kings. And here you read this in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 29. It goes the other direction. And that is, it says... He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. So the glory of Israel there, of course, is God. Here it states that he's not like a person. He's not like a man. He does not lie. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change his mind. Twice it states it. So you have in Genesis and Exodus the statements that God changed or repented. And then you have the statement for Samuel 15.29 that God never changes His mind. He doesn't change His mind like a man. And then you come to the prophet Jeremiah yet a couple hundred years later and he moves in the other direction in chapter 26 verse 13 where it says this, 
It says, Now reform your ways and your actions and obey the Lord your God. Then the Lord will relent. Same word all the way through. Genesis, Exodus, 1 Samuel, and here in Jeremiah. Same Hebrew word, basically saying that he changes his mind. If his people will repent or reform their ways, then the Lord will relent and not bring disaster. He has pronounced on you. So there's a prophet saying that if you reform your ways, God's not going to blow you out of the water. And then again, another prophet, yet a couple hundred years later, the last prophet of the Old Testament states, or should I say God states through him in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, he says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. The fact that they are not destroyed is because God refuses to change. He does not change. Well, what are we to make of this? Well, I just pointed out a bunch of texts that basically seem to suggest that he changes his mind and repents of things. And on the other hand, there are a number of texts that say that God does not change his mind like a man. He does not change. Is this in a, a contradiction in Scripture? I was at an atheist website just this last week, and this was what they pointed at to say the Bible contradicts itself. Is this a contradiction in Scripture? I don't believe so at all. I believe it's a glorious paradox in Scripture. A paradox is something that seems to contradict but never really does. In fact, I would submit to you that our faith rests on both of those things being true. That God is unchanging, and yet in another sense, God changes. That God is both immutable, and yet at the same time, capable of some kind of change. So in some ways, God cannot change. And in other ways, I would think and I want to submit to you that God does change. And the whole message is to kind of lay out those two things and show you why the heck it's important. Because <laughs> I believe it's foundational to our faith. So let me lay out what I don't think changes in God. The ways in which God cannot, will not, never will be altered, changed, or mutated, so to speak. One thing the Scripture tells us that will never change in God is His person. And by that I mean His being and His character. What He is and who He is will never, ever, ever change. It cannot change. It will always remain the same. This is what Psalm 102 seems to get at when it says to us in verse 25 and following, it says, he's talking about how creation differs from the Creator. He says, In the beginning, you, speaking to the Lord, you laid foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. But then he goes on to say, They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out, they will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them and they will be discarded. It's like an old piece of clothes that you don't like and it's going to go first to the mission and then it's going to go into the garbage heap. See, that's essentially what's going to happen to creation. Of course, we know God will renew it. But then it goes on and says, but you remain the same and you and your years will never end. That the essence of who God is is unalterable, immutable, and unchangeable. That is who God is. He can't change creation. Everything we know in creation changes. But He's the one thing that does not change. Not only is that true of His being, it's also true of His character. You have stated in James chapter 1, verse 17, a verse that we sang a few minutes ago, where it says this to us. It's talking about God's goodness. It's a quality of His character, who He is. It says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be 
kind of first fruits of all He created. There, James is saying that God's goodness is unwavering. It's not like a shadow that changes. God is always perpetually good. He is good in all things and at all times. There's never a single day in which God wakes up and has a bad day and does something wrong. He is perpetually, immutably, unalterably, and unchangeably good all the time. And that's true not only the at, of the attribute of his, good, of, of his goodness, but all of His perfections and attributes. They are unchangeable, unalterable. They cannot be diminished because they are always the same. You think about God's power for a moment. Everything we know about power and energy, and power is one of his attributes, is that when it's used, it's depleted, it's diminished. You know, the, the sun that warms our earth is dying, so scientists tell us. It's a haunting thought to think that someday the, the, the sun will implode and it will grow dark if God didn't renew it. Energy decreases as it's used, it's depleted. You know that too. You go out and pull weeds help somebody move, you're tired afterwards because you've depleted yourself of energy. The older I get, the more depleted of energy it seems like I get. I took my two boys, thought I'd be a big, strong dad on my back up the stairs. I got to the top and I was pooped. <laughs> I was thinking, man, I'm getting old. That's what, I was, that's what I, was, I was thinking. I'm not that old and I'm not in that bad of shape, but it just goes to show, you know, you get tired real easy, especially as the boys get bigger. You know, my little one, it's a little... little chunky monkey <laughs> it wears me out i need energy i need sleep i need food otherwise i will die i mean that's the way things are but that not not with the lord his power does not need to be replenished god in a nanosecond could breathe out a billion universes all at the same time and not so much as flex a muscle because his power is unalterable it is infinitely immutable there is no there is no depletion in him. He simply is infinite, unchangeable power. And that's the source of the universe. God doesn't break a sweat. There's no surges of energy. He is always and infinitely immutable in his power. That's true of all of his attributes. So God is not changing. He does not change in his person. By person, I mean his character. I mean who he, uh, what he is, his being. He also does not change, Scripture tells us, in His eternal purposes. It's His purposes. God speaks through the prophet Isaiah, chapter 46, verse 9, and says this. He says, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. In other words, God has it all laid out ahead of time. He goes on to say, I, my purpose will stand. This is an assertion, a determinative assertion on God's part when he says, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. And then he speaks of one instance. He says, from the east I summon a bird of prey. I think he's talking about Babylon to come and uh, be a disciplinary tool over his people. He says, from the east I summon a bird of prey from far off, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. God's eternal purposes cannot be frustrated, cannot be thwarted, cannot be changed. God's eternal plans, His decrees before the birth of the first star cannot be altered. And that, by the way, is a truth of hope. No matter what happens... No matter what laws are passed, no matter what administration gets voted into office, the Lord's purposes cannot be frustrated. 
That gives me hope. And I know where God's purposes ultimately end for His people. It ends in resurrection from the dead. It ends with a new heavens and a new earth. It ends with us seeing God face to face. That's where it ends. So His purposes wind their way through some dark valleys. But in the end, it ends with glory. And no one can take that away from us. See, God is immutable or unchangeable in His person, in His purposes, and lastly, His promises. What He promises. I think that's what um, Moses was getting at in um, Numbers 23, verse 19, where it reads this. It says, God is not a man that He should lie, or like the Son of Man that He should change His mind. Does He speak and then not act? Does He promise and not fulfill? The speaking that I believe is in view is the speaking that comes in the form of a promise or a vow or an oath. When God makes a promise or a vow or an oath, it is unalterable. It is absolutely ironclad guarantee. Nothing in the universe, not all the powers of heaven or all the powers of hell combined can change a single promise that God has made to His people. No one can change it. His promises will last and can be trusted. Now at this point, that in short is the theology of where and how God does not change. But at this point you might say, so? Big whoop! (laughs) How does that make a difference in in my life? And, And I'll tell you, it should make all the difference in the world. Let's think about it from a relational vantage point. It seems to me that God has hardwired us to be people who find a certain security in relationships. I know um, I was fortunate, or blessed, I should say, to have parents who loved each other. They're still married. I watched my dad give a kiss to my mother, mother every morning. I hated it, but he loved it. Um, every night they came home, he came home and gave her another kiss. We knew they loved each other. Um, they'd argue about the checkbook once in a while, but they, they still enjoy being with, with each other. And I found security in their love for each other and their love for me. I had a sense of security there. Many of you find a sense of security in your spouse, your husband. And it's not entirely wrong to find uh, security in relationships provided your ultimate security is not found there. But we find rela- relationships a, a sense of security for us and our children and friends. That's why when you know a, a, a marriage dissolves, there's a sense of insecurity. When friendships break up, there's a sense of insecurity. Um, the problem, of course, with finding security in people is that people change, don't they? They do. The vows that young men make to their brides or young brides make to their husbands, promises that they make, doesn't guarantee that after years and decades that um, commitments will wane, moral commitments may wane. That is, it's not ironclad. I remember returning home in 1997 after being away for a long time, going back to my hometown, back to my family. I had a tight-knit family growing up. And I just thought, man, it could never break apart. And uh, I remember returning home and thinking everything has changed. Marriages had dissolved, and it became a place that was very different from the memory that I had. And I just realized at that moment, things change around us. You can't count on any one relationship lasting forever and ever. You can't. It's just we are not immutable and changeable people. And what, 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 what greatly encourages me is when God says, I do, it's a done deal. When God covenants with His people to do something, it is a done deal. He says, I do, 
I love you until death do us part. God does not die. He means it. He keeps it no matter what. That's a huge difference. That's a huge rock for my faith, that truth. Or let's think about the love of God. You know, God's love for His people is unchangeable, immutable, and unalterable. God will not love His people any more or any less than He does right now. That's why Paul could say, who can separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is no one can. Because once God determines to love you, to love those who trust in Him, that love will never diminish. It will never grow tired. Our love for Him may, may be prone to wander and may wane. But not His love for His people. It's unbreakable, invincible, unthwartable, immutable, unchangeable, unalterable. When God places His love on someone, it's forever. It transcends time and transcends place. That's why God could say, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. He placed His love on him. To know that God loves me with that kind of love that will not ever be prone to wander or throw me aside when I wander, that's a platform for feeling secure, but in God. That's why the people of the Bible spoke of God as the rock and the refuge. Because the rock is one of the closest things we have to something that doesn't move. You know, you can count on it being there. You can count on it being there and not moving no matter what hits it, a semi or a car. God is a rock. He doesn't change. And He's the one foundation stone for the people for the people of God. And you know as well as I, we live in a world that changes all the time. Stock markets change. Finances change. Marriages change. Families change. Cultures change. They drift. Administrations change. Jobs change. Companies come. Companies go. People come. People go. The only thing in the whole universe that doesn't change is God. That's why He's worthy of trusting. Because He is our rock. That's why it's important for our faith to know that God will never change in His person, in His purposes, or His promises can be trusted. So then in what sense does God change? This is the other side. Let me put it like this. And this I also find glorious and amazing, beautiful, wondrous, yet mysterious. God changes in the sense that when He enters creation and enters our time and space, and I'd say even apart from time, space, and creation, our God is an interactive, personal, relational God. That is, He enters into a dynamic relationship with His people. The picture that emerges as you reach the Scripture is a God who interacts with mankind. It's not a one-way relationship. It is a dance. It is a dynamic relationship between creature and creator. So that in some mysterious way, and I don't know how it works, but it's the picture that over and over again emerges from the Scriptures, somehow the immovable God is moved by His creatures. Not in a way that's coercive, but in a way that's gracious. God cannot be forcibly moved by anyone, but He chooses to relate to us. Relational. In some strange, mystical, and amazing way, God the Father, while He is unchangeable, is affected by us. Now those words probably sound a little bit strange to you, but let's think about it for a moment. Take, for example, humility. What the Scripture teaches us about humility, that God gives grace to the humble and He opposes the proud. 
that we can count on the fact that when we humble ourselves before the Lord and we acknowledge our weaknesses and acknowledge our failures and we actually take ownership for the fact that, hey, I, I screwed up. It says that God is disposed to give us grace. Humility brings about a disposition in the Lord to be gracious and merciful. We count on that. I count on the fact that if I come humbly, the Lord will be merciful. By, the, by, by contrast, if someone is arrogant, then God has a disposition to be opposed to that person. Which is why pride and arrogance and self-righteousness are such damnable sins. He's opposed to it. You see, God is responsive based upon the heart and the approach of the person. So God, in one sense, can be gracious to the humble person and can be in opposition and resist the proud person. Or let's take prayer, for example. The same text of Scripture, that is, book of James, that said that God never wavers like a shadow or changes in His goodness, at the end of the book tells us that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And the example that's used is, 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 is Elijah, where Elijah calls into the Lord and says, close up the heavens and don't let it rain. And God closes up the heavens and doesn't let it rain. And then later Elijah says, Lord, drench the earth. And, and the Lord drenches the earth. This man speaking and praying makes a difference as to whether it rains or not. And God's action in some sense is tied to that prayer. God is responding to the prayer of Elijah. Which is why when I hear things like, and I think it's a, well, let me just tell you what it is. When I hear people say, you know, prayer really doesn't change things because God is unchangeable. It just changes us. I just want, I just want to scream and say, that is such a bunch of malarkey, you know? The, the scripture encourages us to pray saying, seek and you shall find and ask and it shall be given to you. One of the central motivations of prayer is that God hears. He responds. He's relational, dynamic. He, he's a God who listens, a God who cares. He's not distant and immutable in the sense that he doesn't relate to us. No, he comes and hears and relates. That's amazing to me. Prayer. Or another aspect that God changes that emerges in Scripture is that God is a God who experiences emotions. I, for one, don't believe when it talks about God having joy or anger that that is anthropomorphic. That is applying to God human values or human characteristics. I think the, God, the Scripture constantly portrays the Lord as the God of joy and delight and sometimes, yes, anger. So you have things like Isaiah chapter 62 that tells us that God rejoices over His people and delights in them. One text says He sings with joy over His people. Now, I don't know how a God who is infinitely, overwhelmingly joyful, He can't be more joyful than He already is because He's infinitely joyful. That never changes. At the same time, somehow He delights in you and He delights in me. He rejoices and He sings over His people. How? I don't know. I just simply know the Scripture says that our God is a God who rejoices when His people do what's right and when they humble themselves before Him. That God is angered over injustice. That He senses anger. That's what's happening in Genesis chapter 6. But He responds, of course, always in consistency with His, His character, which never changes. That we can grieve the Spirit. The Spirit grieves when we're disobedient. Your heart of God grieves. He's Emotions. And if you have your hard time getting your head around that, and of the fact that God is at one time gloriously unchangeable, it's the bedrock of our faith. At the same time, God is relational, He's, he's responsive, he, he, he is personal to us. 
then the best picture I, of course, can give you is that of Jesus. Because He's the one that brings that into focus for us. And here's the last text. Hebrews 1, verses 10 through 12. Before I read 10 to 12, you have to look up at verse 8 and realize that everything that's being spoken is being spoken about the Son. That is Jesus Christ. You see verse 8, it says, But about the Son, he says, and then skipping down to verse 10, he also says, so he's saying everything that's following about the Son of God, that is Jesus Christ. He applies a text I've already read, Psalm 102, and says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. He's talking about Jesus. You laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. This is applying the immutable, um, unchangeable truth To Jesus Himself, He will never change. His being will never change. His character will never change. His purposes will never change. His promises will never change. They will always hold true. And yet, what do we know about Jesus? What I know about Jesus is on His way to the cross, walking up from Jericho to Jerusalem, that when He heard a blind man crying out for mercy, He stopped the entire caravan and turned and went and healed him he didn't keep going he stopped a god who stops to hear the merciful cries but christ for mercy of a blind man that he is a man he has a person jesus is a person who weeps over the death of a friend he's angered over the doubt of his disciples and he is overjoyed at the faith of a widow Jesus is God made known to us. He's, he's the one who shows us what God is like. And, and Jesus is someone that would, would, would say yes to a dinner invitation. Come and sit and dine with me. Share good food and a glass of wine. And Jesus would say, yes, I will go and have a conversation with you. Jesus is someone who delights in a dinner with his disciples on the night before his death. That's a picture of God. Someone who would say yes to a dinner invitation and come and enjoy a conversation and a meal and a glass of wine with someone He loves. Now that's not to diminish the majesty of God, but it is to magnify the mercy of God. That's the God of the Scriptures. I mean, for Pete's sake, a God who is on high, taking on human form and dying on a cross for His people is pretty deep relationship it's responsive it, the heart of god does feel joy it does at times feel anger and it feels love see brothers and sisters there are ways in which god changes and that is he's responsive to us he's relational and personal and there are ways in which god doesn't change his character his purposes and his promises and i believe that makes all the difference in the world knowing that God does in some sense change and He is personal and responsive to us. Even the words we use for Him like Father are relational languages. They're relational words. Think about you know, what Father Jesus taught us. What Father, if a son asked for a piece of bread, would give him a snake? Now, any earthly father would give a child good gifts if they ask. And He's given us a picture of our Father who is perfect. 
You fathers, for a fact, know that if your child was crying out in pain, you'd probably drop everything and help. Brothers and sisters, we have a Heavenly Father who understands the pain of His people, responds to the pain of His people, not always in our expected time frame, but He has a heart for His people. And He comes to them. He's a God who listens, God who cares. And that's the kind of thing you need to know when your baby daughter is on the operating table having open heart surgery on a heart that's no bigger than a walnut, to know that God is in the, in the room with her. He knows God's guiding the surgeon's hands, knowing he's comforting the couple who are waiting for the results out in the waiting room, that God hears and God responds. That's the kind of God that gives you hope when you don't know what's going to happen in the next six months with regards to your job or your house. You don't know, but you can know that God is here. God responds. He is personal. He's not the force of Star Wars that is impersonal. He has a name. He speaks and can be spoken to. That's part of the beauty of a God who is unchanging and yet changes in that He relates, responds, and is personal to His people. That is the God of the scriptures. And I don't know what you're facing in your life, what changes and turbulence, but I'll tell you what, God is a rock and a fortress for his people to trust. But you can also trust that the God of scriptures who came and took on the form of man will hear your prayers and he will be with you if you trust and call on him. Amen. Gracious Father, thank you for the truth of the Scripture and that this, what seems to be a contradiction, is in fact a glorious paradox, um, bringing out the beauty of a God who is immensely unchangeable and yet at the same time personally responsive to the heart and to the cries of His people. Will you, Lord, feast our souls on that? Help us to believe that truth. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.